You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Houston. Episode 15, The Royal Training of Moses. Imagine, you are a Hebrew from the line of Levi in 1520 BC in the land of Goshen in Egypt. Your name is Amram, and you have a family, a boy, Aaron, who is getting there, a serious and thoughtful son. He will get there, you say to yourself. You have a girl named Miriam, very brilliant and with big, full eyes set to her future. You are happy with your community and your family, except you hate the days of labor and the oppression and the treatment of your people. The Egyptians have been getting harder and harder on you. You feel the pain in your back from a lashing you received yesterday. You remember the echoing story of an older man killed by the Egyptians. You look at your family and feel their warmth and return to their comfort, forgetting about the day of work. You eat with your children and talk with your wife and take Aaron and tuck him into bed. Aaron asks you a question about God. How do I pray, Daddy? You answer, just talk to God like you talk to me. And he will answer, you say. You settle him into bed and you leave his room and you listen to the echo of your own answer in your head. And he will answer. And he will answer. It goes off in your head and it echoes as you slide down your wall in tears as you pray. Where are you, God? After a hard night at home, you return to work in the morning, mudding day and night. What a dreadful job. You work harder when the taskmaster walks by because you don't want to get whipped again. Day after day, you struggle to find any fulfillment building cities for a pharaoh who was once a friend to your people, once a friend to millions of your countrymen in a foreign land. But now you are bruised and broken, a slave and laborer, a brickmaker. In fact, all of you are brickmakers. The other day, the Egyptians brought a statue of Joseph into the land, into the city of Goshen, only to destroy it in front of everyone. They want to remove our place in our history. They want to demoralize us completely and destroy our culture. One day after work, you return home to discover news in your house. Your wife tells you she is pregnant with another child. There is rejoicing in the house. It seems the entire family parties all night. It is impossible to put the kids to bed that night. You return to work in the morning, mudding day and night. What a dreadful job. You work harder when the taskmaster walks by because you don't want to get whipped again. You notice they are harsher today and you find yourself the target of a random anger of a taskmaster today. Your only consolation is others are feeling the pain as well. A few of the older men tried to reason with the guards and one of them was beaten to death. You couldn't believe the cruelty. You hear rumor it is because of the acts of the midwives, Shepra and Puah. When you get home that night, you hear the latest news. Your wife approaches you in tears. Pharaoh has commanded all the Hebrews who bear a newborn son to throw him into the Nile. 
You respond, no, this is not possible. It is true, she said through her tears. That night you prayed and pray that your family would be delivered from this terrible evil. Hope you like this fictional account of the life of Amran. It is based upon Exodus chapter 1. Amran and his wife bear a son who comes to be known as Moses. According to Acts 7 verse 20, at that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. The dating of Moses' birth has differing dates, but we're going to go with Moses being born in 1520 B.C. to Amron from the line of the tribe of Levi. And from here on out, we'll be using the dates from the sanctification of the Temple of Jerusalem, which occurred at 960 B.C. Using this date, we put the Exodus at 480 years earlier, according to 1 Kings 6. Dating back 480 years puts the time of Exodus at 1440 B.C. and Moses' birth around 1520 B.C. Amran had Aaron and Miriam prior to Moses' birth. It is unclear, but it may have been only one or many generations back when the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians. It is clear they overstayed themselves in Egypt, and a pharaoh that knew not Joseph came to power. It is unclear from historical records which pharaoh was in charge. There are a few differing possibilities. Here are some possible candidates. It was most likely not Ramses, who ruled a few hundred years later. It was most likely one of the rulers, Thutmose III or Thutmose IV, but this is inconclusive. So for the sake of this podcast, we'll title the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh. He will, of course, represent all that is evil. His sins will begin with the enslavement and culminate into a form of infant genocide. The Pharaoh at the time of Moses must have been a very insecure ruler, for he feared the Hebrews due to their numbers. But before we open up the book of Exodus, I made a comment in a previous podcast stating Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Listener Stephen Carlisle commented on Facebook and had a question about this statement. I researched Stephen's question, and I have to kind of backtrack on my statement. I said the common belief and Jewish and Christian tradition that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. This tradition is most likely not true. Many Bible experts today say ancient Jewish leaders compiled Genesis through Deuteronomy, so the author is actually unknown. But much of Deuteronomy was directly quoted by Moses, and it states he wrote much of it down. But there's also the death of Moses recorded in the following statement in Numbers 12.3, that Moses was more humble than any other person on the earth. This would have been ridiculous if Moses uttered this about himself, and how could he record his own death? So thanks, Stephen, for the question. I really like your questions and sincere feedback. And if there's any other listeners out there that have any other questions as well, I'll try to research them and get back with you. Also, if the answer fits into our timeline, I will incorporate the answer into the next podcast. Exodus 1. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was already in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more mightier than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they will also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So why is Pharaoh so concerned? What's the big deal with the numbers? Really, only 70 went down to Egypt at the time of Joseph. How could they be more numerous than the Egyptians? According to the book of Numbers, when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, there are 600,000 men in addition to women and children. So stop here. How is this possible? Seriously, mathematically, is this possible? I work with numbers. I did some research just to arrive at 600,000 people. Every family would have to have over 20 children. We know this is possible because Bob and Michelle Duggar live nearby here. There are some suggestions that there was a translation error from 60,000 people. But the Bible does say they multiplied exceedingly abundantly. So I'll let you come up with your own conclusion on how many Hebrews there were. But for the sake of the podcast, I will be echoing the literal translation of 600,000 or 3 million Hebrews, an estimate which includes women and children. Exodus chapter 1 verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with vigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All of their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And when the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Puah, and he said, When you do the duties of the midwife of the Hebrew women, and see them on the stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and said to them, Why have you done this thing, and saved the male children alive? And the Hebrew midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all of his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter he shall save alive. Pharaoh first enslaved the Hebrews, and then when they multiplied more, he asked the midwives to kill the boys. And when this didn't work, he commanded the death of all males. It's easy to read this fast, but we really have to stop here. Sometimes simple reading doesn't do its justice. You have to really camp on some things and think about it. This Pharaoh was wicked. I mean, really wicked. He had genocide in his heart. Think Nazi Germany here. He enslaved and ordered the death of the Jews. All through history, the Hebrews and later the Jews will be the most common targets of future genocides all through history. 
Pharaoh had such hatred for an entire group of people, he singled them out for servitude and infanticide. At the heart of it was fear. He feared his rule and he feared the Hebrews. But Pharaoh represents so much more. Every time there is a prophecy announced publicly by God, man and the angels watch it and how it will be fulfilled. Remember back to the Abraham prophecy? After Abraham made a sacrifice to God, God confirmed his covenant with Abraham and uttered the following prophecy. Genesis 15 verse 13. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they will come out with great possessions. And now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Each major prophecy can be watched from three perspectives. Number one, God will fulfill it, and he is setting the stage to fulfill his word, typical, typically with contradictions to be confirmed with miracles, signs, and wonders. Number two, man must believe and be faithful and walk into the promise despite all the obvious contradictions and a redeemer must lead the people. Number three, the devil's perspective, interferences and outward contradictions to God's plan. Spiritual warfare. In the case of Abraham's prophecy, the devil feared the conclusion of the prophecy. The Hebrews would grow into a nation and set Pharaoh in his place, removing his workforce, and the Canaanites, all ten kingdoms or more, would be overthrown and God would set up a physical kingdom on earth of royal priests and followers. There was so much to lose for the devil. He has entire principalities and kingdoms which are in jeopardy if this promise is fulfilled. The entire balance of power will be turned. You can almost see a time ticker set in place from the date Abraham gets this word. 400 years ticking down to almost no time left. The devil is getting terrified as he witnesses the multiplication of the Hebrews and multiplied angelic activity on earth. What he does do when he is desperate, he resorts to very desperate measures. And as the ticker times down, to revelation time, when the revelation of the prophecy will come true. He is desperate to prevent the impossible. And what does he do? He hates the next generation, because a redeemer will be born in the next generation. The devil, through Pharaoh, purposely pursues the destruction of infants and babies and the termination of the next generation, for a redeemer will be born in the next generation. It is an age-old strategy. We see it here. We see it in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus in Matthew 2. And I'll let you ponder this question. What is this age-old strategy, and how does this age-old strategy affect today in our modern world? And what does it say about the next generation? 
No matter how hard the devil tries, he cannot thwart God's plan of redemption. What God says will happen. He will fulfill his word and redemption will happen. Picking up from before, Moses was born but hidden from the Egyptians. It is clear they were not going to just murder their own baby and they were going to hide him as long as they could. They obeyed Pharaoh, but they placed their child in a unique position near a princess and made him a small boat. Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus blanket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she said. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of water. It is funny that God uses an ark again. Um, The original language for the small boat that they put Moses in is ark. The use of this language is almost enjoyable that that God would bring forth redemption again by using an ark. Later on, Moses is given his name. The word Moses sounds like a Hebrew word, draw out. But there is more here. Moses in Egyptian means boy and was partly common in this time. Here are some common pharaoh names, Amos, first and second, and Thutmos, first through fourth. They each contain part of the name Moses. Now we look at a classic return of fortune. Pharaoh wants to do away with the Hebrews, but instead he he has to raise one in his own court now. Talk about the power of a woman in society, or at least this woman in this society. The princess somehow convinces Pharaoh to be okay with this, for he is now raising, with special honor, a Hebrew. I really like what Acts 7 says about Moses next. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Alright, so here is Moses raised in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. A Hebrew with one of the best educations in the world. A noble man and a great man in Egypt. Could it be possible he even had a distant right to be Pharaoh himself? This is where we arrive at the spiritual concept. Moses was trained in all the ways of Egypt. Sounds like Daniel. He had the best education, best resources at his disposal. At his fingertips was all the literature and writing and training of all sorts. He reported directly to the head of the government. He had nearly unlimited access to all the resources of his country. This mirrors Paul's description of sons of God who have unlimited access to resources and all knowledge and wisdom from heaven's storehouse from the book of Ephesians. Moses later quotes that the Israelites are a royal priesthood, 
which is very symbolic, is easy to see the actual trinity at work in Moses' life. Moses was trained as royalty in Pharaoh's court for 40 years, and later he was trained in the wilderness for 40 years, where he learned to be a priest. In Egypt, he learned the characteristics that a father teaches his children, protection, provision, identity. In the wilderness, he learns the characteristics of Jesus in humility, meekness, and peacemaking. In the final 40 years of his life, he walks in the power of the Holy Spirit with miracles, signs, and wonders. In Romans 8, Paul compounds on the point that those who believe and accept Jesus are considered sons of God. What does this mean? This means that our spirit cries out for a father in heaven and that we are considered part of God's family. And as a son or a daughter, we are entitled to all the resources and inheritance from our father. By faith, these resources are available. Are you suffering from poverty? What does your heavenly father say about that? Are you suffering any ailment? What does your heavenly father say about that? Are you walking in joy? What does your heavenly father say about that? Our fathers on earth are to model Father God, teaching and instilling protection, provision, and identity. This is what Moses' first 40 years can represent. All right, so we discussed the spiritual concept and how Moses was educated in the Egyptian court. But this is where history gets kind of interesting. According to Exodus 2, Moses runs away from Egypt at the age of 40. Exodus 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one to the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What must I, what I must have done has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Okay, so this is where the biblical account ends for this episode, but there is some extra history here. About a year ago, I was listening to Josephus, the Antiquities of the Jews, and I couldn't believe some of the things he was saying about Moses. By the way, there's an app for your iPhone called Audiobooks, which is free where you can download audiobooks. And most of them are free, such as the one on Josephus. So if you want to listen to it yourself, feel free. Antiquities of the Jews is read by an amateur, and his pronunciations are probably worse than mine, but it's free and it's out there. Now, Josephus is considered one of the greatest historians of all time. His view is obviously skewed towards the Jews, which is fine since nearly every ancient historian skews his opinions and histories based upon the nation that he lived. But his account of the 70 AD siege of Jerusalem is spectacular, and he populates many fringes of Jewish history. He, just, he does just that with Moses, but first I have to preface the fact that Josephus is Jewish, and he elevates Jewish leaders. Here's the account of Moses that occurs after his royal training and before he goes to Midian. 
According to Josephus, the Ethiopians had invaded Egypt, conquering the Egyptian cities in their path as they swept across the country to the Mediterranean Sea. The Egyptians sought guidance from their oracles, and when counsel came to them from God to take the Hebrews for their ally, Pharaoh bade his daughter give up Moses to serve as his general. Moses, Josephus recounts, gladly accepted the task. In order to surprise the Ethiopian army, Moses traveled south through the serpent-ridden desert rather than along the Nile. His sneak attack was successful. Moses came wholly unexpected upon the Ethiopians, joined battle with them, and defeated them, crushed their cherished hopes of mastering the Egyptians, and then proceeded to attack and overthrow their cities. Moses' military prowess had an unusual effect on the Ethiopian princess, Tharbas, who watched the battle from inside the capital city's walls. Tharbas, the daughter of the king of the Ethiopians, watched Moses bringing his troops close beneath the city ramparts and fighting valiantly, marveling at the ingenuity of his maneuvers and understanding that it was to him that the Egyptians, who until now despairing of their independence, owed all their success, and through him that the Ethiopians so boastfully of their feats against them were reduced to the last straits. Thus she fell madly in love with him. Tharvis made a proposal of marriage to to Moses, and he accepted on condition that Tharbas surrender her hometown. The princess agreed, and Moses rendered thanks to God, celebrating the nuptials, and led the Egyptians back to their own land. Josephus relates. There are other historical accounts of Moses in this time, but this is the only one where he actually had a previous wife. When I first tripped onto this, I it really just seemed like hero worship to me. Really, I have never heard of this. Not that this is not true. It's definitely not in the Bible. Despite all this, Josephus is a very notable historian. I think the evidence points to a form of elevating one's own into mythical status. Why not make one of your own heroes into something even better? Well, why not elevate God in his place instead of man? But that's not what Josephus did. I believe the reason for Josephus' high opinion of Moses is Judaism. Let me explain. At the time of Jesus in Israel, we will see the religion of Judaism. I've heard it said that Moses obtained 200 sacred laws from God for his people, but the teachers of the law over a thousand years later interpreted Moses' laws into 600 plus laws for the people to obey. Now this would make sense why Jesus constantly challenged the religious authorities in Jerusalem. In Matthew 15, Jesus said, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine rules made by men. Josephus, who was a Jew and a follower of Judaism, would have of course elevated Moses because the religion is based upon a set of rules. To be holy was to obey the rules, and the originator of these laws was Moses. Thus he would have easily added some extra depth to Moses' story. Why not add character and more depth to the man responsible for obtaining these sacred laws from God himself? Alright, so I say all this, but there are positive points to point the war history of Moses. 
Moses was royalty. He was honored. He was respected. He was trained. He was educated and raised in the highest court of the land. He had access to military resources and would have had the skills to lead a campaign. This account is altogether possible, but did it happen? We do not know. If Josephus is correct and Moses was a war hero, it makes the final statement of Moses' rejection from Egypt very strange. He killed an Egyptian and buried him, hoping no one would know. By the way, it sounds like Moses had a pretty bad anger problem, which we'll see time and time again. In addition, that's really terrible that he would kill someone and bury him, hoping no one would see. If this is a picture of Moses' character when he was in Egypt, we can almost understand why it took the wilderness to achieve the needed godly character to lead his future people. Also, I think we can read more into the ejection of Moses from Egypt as well. There must have been more to the story. If a person of royal blood in this time period killed someone, especially a slave guard, they could possibly receive a pardon or a lesser sentence. But it stated that Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. There must have been hidden animosity between Pharaoh or even a fear of Moses, which led to Pharaoh to use the excuse to take him out. We don't know for sure, but there was far more going on here, and clearly Moses was a wrecked man, raised by the enemy of his people. And who knows, God may have already put the desire in his heart to help free his people, but he may have taken it into his own hands, failing to wait upon the Lord. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'd like to press the point that those who accept Jesus become a new creation. But not only that, they have been accepted into the new family of God. Just as Moses was rescued and raised by a new royal family, so are you when you accept Jesus. We each have an earthly father and mother, like Moses had, but we have a royal father that gives us additional identity, gives us our true identity. For our Father is the creator and ruler of the universe. Our spirit cries out, Abba, Father, to our Father in heaven, for we are called sons and daughters of God. And as a son and daughter of God, we have a unique identity formed with a unique look, identity, purpose, gifts, and talents. Each of us is accepted and not rejected. Our Father in heaven is our protector. He watches over those who love him. He is our provider. All we need in life is just a request away, and all the resources of heaven are available to those who petition God, and our Father will make sure of this. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss Moses and the wilderness, Moses' priestly training, and conclude with the burning bush. Feel free to check out the Facebook page and leave a comment, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.